this idea that you have a choice between flavor and yield is a false choice. Flavor, yield. That's right, we're talking seeds. Pepper seeds, cucumber seeds, potato seeds, and most importantly for our show today, seeds for growing the humble butternut squash, that veritable orb of hearty autumnal flavor. That is, if you season it heavily and cook it just right and maybe add some brown sugar and butter. Dan Barber is a chef, a pretty famous chef in the world of farm-to-table cooking. And over the years, Dan tasted way too many subpar butternut squashes and wondered aloud, is there a better way? Surely there must be a better way. Now, Dan says his new company, Row 7 Seeds, has found just that. I'm Adam Davidson, and this is The Passion Economy, the show where we talk to regular people who have figured out how to thrive in an economy that seems stacked against them. And as usual, the story of passion starts in childhood, which obviously is not a time when most people appreciate greens and gourds and things. But Dan grew up in an ecosystem that is about as far away from a farm as you can get, Manhattan in the 70s and 80s. This was not the New York City of today with rooftop farms and Whole Foods. It was the heyday of cheap, processed food, TV dinners, jello salads, cheese in a can. But Dan had an out his grandma's house. My grandmother had purchased this farm, and uh, it, it was for grazing cattle. I mean, for, for my grandmother, it was basically to, like, my grandma's a, like, social social animal. I mean, she was, yeah, she was, like, the queen of the Berkshires in the 70s. So she often had people over the house, and so I think the farm for her was, like, you know, this like, kind of iconic, like, yeah, picturesque, which it, all of which it was, picturesque, southern Berkshire, beautiful landscape thing going on. My mother died, so that was the reason I spent so much time. My grandma was up at the farm. When my did your mother was, die? How when about... I was four. Oh, really? Yeah. So my dad worked a lot, and so I was really up at the farm. Actually, by myself, I was, my grandmother, as I mentioned, was so social. I had a brother and a sister, my a older brother and a much older sister, 12 years older. So she wasn't around, and my brother was a little, as we got older, a little bit less interested in the farm. And so it was really me who kind of like loaned it loner it <laughs> on the farm with the farmers and sort of that was my family. Wow. And were you doing... Yeah, I was doing the work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. I grew up doing that. I mean, I loved it. Yeah, that's... Because I grew up in Manhattan like you did around the same time and I think I saw one cow once in my childhood. I yeah, went... Right. We had a... In PS3, we had a overnight somewhere in the Hudson Valley and, yeah. and we went to a farm and that's my entire yeah. experience of agriculture as a kid. For most people, I was incredibly lucky. The, a lot of work. A lot of work. That has stayed with me to this day. And so when I got back to the, the sort of New York City, the people went to camp and like did all these things. I was like, you guys have no idea how the world works. <laughs> I was what? I was in seventh grade. But I really felt that very strongly. And I was sort of teased for being like sort of, you know, I was excited about motorcycles because these the farmers were and I like tractors and like, and I just, and then, you know, a couple of weeks later, I adjusted and I was back into New York. And was food a thing in your mind as a kid? In the sense that I probably overcompensated for not having a mother, although my father loved food, loved restaurants, loved the energy, palpably excited in the, you know, throes of like a new restaurant or the, the kind of pulse of a restaurant. And you could see him come to life in a way that, in the way that I rarely saw actually with him. What did your dad do? Uh, he was in the toy business. 
Oh, really? Yeah. Manufacturing? Or yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. He was creative manufacturing. Yeah, all that stuff. Any toys we'd know? Yeah, he invented the Hess toy truck with the Hess. I don't know if you've yeah, sure. Hess toy truck. We yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, big yeah. one. Yeah, so he started that. And he was a very evolved eater. He couldn't cook, but he knew what good food was. And because he was in business and always, in, you know, kind of going to business meetings, I was with him. So I was, I went out to eat a lot and traveled a lot. So I think that was probably a strong inculcation, as was the farm. But there was these like dueling things going on in my formative years. Right. The early production of raw material on the farm and then the yeah. kind of highest execution. Expression. Yeah, expression. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What was your journey to becoming a chef? Well, I wanted to be a writer. So I did cooking because I wanted to earn some money. Like in college, actually, I was cooking. And then after college, I was cooking. And I was sort of like trying to think about this novel I wanted to write. And I went on to just continue to cook. <laughs> but I mean, I started writing. I, mean, I ended up writing a book, but that was now you know, 20 years later. But I, cooking was a vehicle to be a writer. And whereas it became, you know, an expression of the experience of cooking, actually, which I hadn't anticipated. So let's go back. So, yeah. okay, so you, you're cooking in college. Where'd you go to college? I went to Tufts. To Tufts, not a famous culinary institute. No. And not in the 80s a famous food. Yeah, Boston, no, no, not, no. not a big food. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you could name a lot of famous food towns in, in the late 80s. Yeah. Started, yeah, early, yeah, I guess Berkeley. Right. <laughs> Done. Which is where I went. Yeah. <laughs> and then After what, college. Yeah? Is that yeah. where you went? Yeah. 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 And what did you do? There. I worked at Chez Panisse, Oh, you did? Yeah, okay. yeah, for a little bit. Yeah, I, I spent more time with the farmers that supplied Chez Panisse, and, uh, but I spent some time in the restaurant, yeah. And some listeners will know, some some won't, that Chez Panisse is a restaurant opened by Alice Waters and her partner in the 60s, I guess, yeah. and that I guess is seen as one of the pioneers of really special, fresh ingredients that yeah, local, local. And, and organic ingredients. She's yeah. really the godmother of that movement. Yeah. So you learned a lot from her? Well, I mean, I, I learned a lot from the... Yes, I learned a lot from her. I mean, she's a huge influence. But I learned a lot about how these farmers thought about growing food, which was, you know, all new to me. Was that, so would you drive out to the Central Valley of California and just... Well, yeah. Yeah, Central Valley, not so much. I mean, she was she was more local than that. And so I, I was really spent some time with some brilliant suppliers that had supplied for many years. And how did they, how did they bring these flavors? The flavors of the, the, the products were extraordinary. Like what and even kinds I knew of that. Thing? Well, I just remember like, I just remember I was a young line cook and I remember peeling turnips and the chef, this man named Jean-Pierre Moulet, who was an old sort of very accomplished French chef but had been with Alice for many, many years. Actually been there really since the beginning. And he took a bite of this turnip that I thought was extraordinary. And he just put aside, he said, stop peeling. We're not using this today. It's not good enough. And the next day, another supplier came in with, another farmer came in with a turnips. And I tasted the difference. It's just like, once you taste what a turnip could be, you really don't want to go back. Dan went on to work in kitchens in New York and Paris. Eventually, he opened his own restaurant in Manhattan. It's called Blue Hill. Later, he opened a second Blue Hill in Stone Barns, New York, about a half hour north of the city. The approach to food at both of Dan's restaurants comes out of those experiences, working at Chez Panisse, dining out with his dad, and being close to the land on his grandma's farm. 
I, you know, I want to be unplugged with the food and so have it express what the farmer slash soil slash ingredient wants to express and to the extent that that doesn't sound ridiculous. But there's another part of it too, which is the craft of cooking, which is the transmutation of foods that are that are raw into something that sings. And so a large part of cooking that excites me and excites most chefs is that process, is that process of taking damaged goods, whether it's a literally a damaged vegetable or an underutilized slash uncoveted cut of meat and use the tradition and culinary craft to make that into something that is covetable. And that is what cooking is all about and is important in the overall scheme of how, you know, a good agricultural system works. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's a continuum. There's not like a line that no, like that's here right. it's raw, here it's cooked. I right. mean, there, there's obviously at a far end, there's highly processed or even like kind of Frenchy, like lots of sauce and lots of manipulation that the actual... I, would, I would argue that's bad French cooking, but yes, yeah, I, okay. I know what you mean. Yeah. I yeah. know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. And, but, uh, but for a chef, you're teasing out, not for a chef, for me, you're teasing out some of both what I struggle with and some of my insecurities, because how do you... Insecurities in the sense of like daily, if not hourly questions of like, you know, how do you take a product that has a real story right down to the breeder, the genetics of it, and that's expressed through the right kind of soil amendments and the right kind of rotations. And, and, it, and it really say, and how, how do you do justice to that on the plate and also charge money for it in this culture where it doesn't seem like you're just doing it completely unplugged? There's that famous line many years ago from a chef who, a French chef who, who was doing a dinner with a couple of other chefs, including Alice Waters from Chez Panisse. And Alice Waters came in and demoed her dish. And he looked at her and said, that's not cooking, that's shopping. <laughs> <laughs> and one wonders, I wonder where I should be in that dichotomy. Is it shopping? Is it like, you know, really delivering on this unplugged ideal? Or is it about taking the uh, product and transmutating it really into something that becomes both culturally acceptable and comfortable? And so that's the challenge. Now, there's a interesting economics to caring a lot about the ingredients, which is that it takes a lot of power out of you as the restaurant owner or the chef. Like, it, I remember researching coffee and learning that Starbucks really likes to have these generic names like Pike's Place or whatever because they're able to source coffee from all over the world at whatever happens to be the cheapest price. They are able to mix it, mix it and, and get what they want. Get what yeah. they want that they control. They're not in the hands of, say, the farmers from the Yirgacheffe region of Ethiopia or whatever. And so if you're throwing away food that is otherwise good or you're not using it for its highest value. Maybe you throw it in a soup or a stock or something. And you're saying like only these two producers can produce to our standard or probably in many cases only this one producer can produce to our standard. That's a dangerous place to be just in a business relationship, a buyer and a seller. And it means you have a burden to communicate to your customers, the eaters, <laughs> why it's worth paying a premium, why it's worth... On the one hand, I see your point. On the other hand, it goes back to what is the role of a chef or the or the culinary craft. And the culinary craft is to make that, that second turnip uh, sing. And how do you do that? And then what do you apply to it? Now, when I said that chef said, get away from it, I don't want to use that. It was because this was a particular dish that was concentrated on the turnip. It was a turnip salad, as if, if I remember correctly. 
but it wasn't throw away and then and let's waste the other turnip. It was like we have this printed menu. In that case, they did have a printed menu. Yeah. And it was a nice time for turnips. And so we needed that they needed the turnip to express itself for all of its turnipness. But that rarely happens or it doesn't happen often. And so it depends on what environment you're in and what you're growing and et cetera. Right. And no so, restaurant is throwing away tons of food. No, I mean, you just no, can't do you it. You can't do it. Yeah. So you're taking that turnip and as you said, you're making it into a soup and yeah. You're doing everything that the history of the correspondence between agriculture and cuisine is done for 10,000 years. It's to eke out what the land could produce and make it edible and delicious and nutritious for your family and for your community. And then do it in a, in a sort of pattern, in a connected way, which is cuisine. I mean, you know, you do it not just the one-offs, but you're planting things in succession and things that work particularly well for your soil, for your climate. And that becomes, a ri- from that arises this cuisine and this culture. So for years, Dan is working at Blue Hill, transmuting great produce into delicious dishes. And one night, one fateful night, a group of diners sat down for dinner. They're all seed breeders from Cornell University. I came to the table to introduce myself. And at that point, I had met a few modern breeders, but I had never met one. When I talked to him, he spoke like a chef. I mean, he was enamored with food and flavor. And I was just like really taken by him. And I invited him into the kitchen. And we're standing there and we're looking at a, a, one of my cooks who was prepping a butternut squash. You know, this is that work-a-day squash. It's the most popular squash grown in the United States of America. And we were prepping, I think, for the next day soup or something. And I looked at Michael and, you know, just sort of off the cuff said, if you're such a great squash breeder, why don't you breed a butternut squash that actually tastes good? Instead of, in other words, having to add butter and maple syrup and brown sugar and all these heroics that we go through in the kitchen to actually make squash taste like squash. And what he said to me, I'll never forget, and in many ways, it's there's a before and after this point, I think it's fair to say, because he looked at me and he said, in all my years of breeding, no one has ever asked me to breed for flavor. What Dan does with that insight, that's coming up after the break. When Dan Barber talks about the moment that sparked everything, it was this. Standing there, learning the sorry state of squash breeding. I had tasted heirloom squashes that were jaw-droppingly delicious. So I knew that it was possible. Why not do it in butternut squash? And his modern breeder was saying, well, no one's asking me for that. Butternut squash are essentially picked green as you would pick a green tomato, and they're stored and they ripen in storage. And so what you're tasting is looks like a very ripe squash that you pick on the vine that was done ready for picking. But actually, in most cases, 90% plus squash in this country is picked green and unripe and without flavor because of that. That's sort of lights out, curtain down. It's like, well, what the hell are they asking for? Of course, you think about it, and I learn more. They're asking for uniformity, durability, for, for for storability. A huge one for yield is a big one. Those are the determining factors. Taste is very low on the totem pole, and in fact, apparently not on the totem pole. In yeah, a lot right, of cases. right. So that's when we started this project he had been working on, and one of his predecessors at Cornell had created this shrunken butternut squash, unnamed thing. So we started testing in the kitchen. It was fabulous, like really memorable. And wow. Yeah, it was crazy because you, we don't associate modern breeding, modern genetic anything with 
pleasure and deliciousness. We associate with Monsanto maniacs, right? But there is this huge divide between the Monsanto maniacs and the heirloom, you know, nostalgic thing that we associate with all good food. And it's a false dichotomy. There is a huge opportunity in between. And it's that in-between space, in-between total scale and tiny boutique seeds, it's there that Dan thinks there might be a niche. I started to think, why am I keeping it within the four walls of a white tablecloth restaurant? I mean, I, let's democratize this. And that's at the core of row seven is to democratize deliciousness. And it shouldn't be expensive. It shouldn't be elite. It should be the opposite. And breeders, modern breeders can deliver on that promise. And a seed company that's the vehicle for that deliverance is the idea behind row seven. And this is, I mean, this does happen reasonably often on when I think about the passion economy stuff, but it's such a great example of, it can feel like, oh, every idea has been tried, everything's been tried, and the only way to get ahead is some money. But you asked such a basic question. Yeah. Why so doesn't simple. butternut squash exactly. taste better? Yeah. 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 And the answer, no one's asked me. No one's asked you. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, what just I don't want to get off too much off the thing, but back to that example is when the first prototype came, I mean, if you're looking at a butternut squash, I don't know what your image is, a yeah, couple butternut squash, but that's basically a butternut squash. That's about 90% water. And it's been bred to be 90% water for a reason, because for a long time, water was free in California and and in Arizona, and you were looking at selling your butternut squash by weight, which is how it works. So why wouldn't you bulk it up with water? So you're transporting that butternut squash across the country, increasingly across the world, which you're essentially transporting is water. And the reason it doesn't taste good, and this is a distilled, dumbed-down version of why it doesn't taste good, is because it's filled with water. And you don't have the, you know, it washes over all those flavor, and not to mention all the nutrient density is all dispersed through water. Again, that's a very simplistic definition, but that's where breeding's gone with everything. Everything is by weight, and everything is bulked up with water. Dan decided to go another direction. His squash, which he named the honey nut squash, is not bulky. It literally fits in the palm of your hand. And listening to Dan talk about his precious firstborn squash, I have to say, I've heard few better examples of what passion sounds like. Dan gets so excited about his brave little squash. This bravura squash that I said had this jaw-dropping, intensely delicious flavor that's deep orange. And like, you don't you don't add anything to it. You don't have maple so You don't have butter. I mean, you add a little bit of salt and that's it. That's what we do at the restaurant. We totally unplug. Sorry, honestly, we had to cut him off. He just kept going and going. This guy loves squash. And that's kind of the point. Eventually, this becomes the essence of Rose 7's business model. They sell seeds, bred for deliciousness, to farmers and hobbyists. Those seeds, of course, end up as tasty veggies in someone's kitchen. Maybe a home chef's. Maybe they're in a restaurant. Many of those professional chefs know Dan, or at least they know his work, his acclaimed restaurants. And so to them, Dan is a foremost authority on making vegetables delicious, and they're happy to try out his wares. Ditto amateur chefs and foodies who might know Dan from his TED Talks or his book. So that's Dan's audience. But as excited about this squash as Dan was, not everyone was immediately sold on it. When it was first brought to the big distributor, the big marketplace distributor, he looked at it and laughed and said, and this, I don't have a skew for this, is what he said. That was the first, <laughs> I don't have a skew for this. Ah, uh, the skew. Let's talk about the skew. That's S-K-U, short for Stock Keeping Unit. It's basically a unique code assigned to a product that helps stores track their stock, sort of like the code behind a barcode. 
The SKU is a very useful tool for giant grocery chains. It lets them track precisely how many yellow onions are in a specific store at a specific time of day. Retailers use SKUs to calculate what exactly is in stock and what isn't. It's this great way to manage lots of stuff. It's one of the technologies that allows the modern world to exist. And that's because the SKU was built for scale. It was developed to make things more efficient in the economy of produce as much as you can at the lowest possible price. That's why Dan's little squash didn't really compute to that distributor. The distributor was expecting the standard butternut squash, identical to all the others. The distributor was expecting commodity squash. But that's not what Dan is selling. And this is why he's such a great example of the passion economy. I've said this many times before, and I'll say it again. You do not want to enter a commodity market. That is, a market where the goods are basically interchangeable and you're competing to offer the lowest possible price. There's just not a lot of profit there, and you do not want that. Put another way, you do not want to fit into a skew. But, and this is something a lot of passion economy businesses initially face, someone just didn't get it. In this case, the distributor. He had a very narrow idea of the sort of squash he could sell. The butternut squash is this dimension by this dimension. And actually, all the calculation going right down the seed is how many are going to grow per acre. They're going to fit in a skew. They're going to deliver to your Walmart. That's all figured out years before. And that's where the breeding work goes, is you have to dial into that because you're basically working on the dimensions of a skew. How many are going to fit in there is how you work out your profit and how you can charge the least amount of money. This guy's looking at this like, I don't have a skew for this. Like, it can't calculate it. (laughs) And then the second person we talked to about this, literally the second, said, no one's ever going to buy that. I mean, look at it. Why would you spend 30% more for 60% less? Of course, some people will spend more for a smaller squash. If there's a convincing story there, Dan's story has a lot going for it. He's got elite chef bona fides. He's got this quirky little squash that screams, I am not a commodity. I'm different. Eat me. Dan's bet with row seven was that there'd be a lot of customers willing to pay a bit more for non-commodity seeds, seeds with a bit more personality and pizzazz. And the vegetables that grow from those seeds, because they look different and they didn't fit into a skew, their novelty would excite some customers. And judging from what's happened with Dan's squash, he seems to be onto something. This squash is grown from coast to coast. It is in major supermarkets. Uh, Trader Joe's down the street sort of grows a ton of it. Whole Foods it's been in. It says it's going into Costco. Uh, Blue Apron harvested last fall, harvested 2.3 million pounds of it. Uh, It's at every major supermarket. It is now in major Bon Appetit food magazines, not listed as butternut squash, but as honey nut squash, its name. And it is upending the butternut squash market in a way that happened in four years. Wow. Yeah, it went from zero to 60 in four years. After the break, what going zero to 60 in the squash market says about the rest of the economy. That's coming up. Dan's business went from zero to 60 in just four years. That level of disruption and how quickly it happened, that, of course, has happened in a lot of industries, especially ones where consumers changing tastes are driving sales. 
And the thing is, most of those big disruptive changes, they're coming from small companies, companies that have not scaled production, in part because they haven't had the time or money. But in a lot of ways, that lack of scale, that is their advantage. It's much easier to innovate and create the next big thing if you aren't working inside the parameters of scale, just filling a skew. Dan's discovery that started all this, that big seed manufacturers don't really breed for flavor, that's because of scale. Breeders have focused on breeding for other stuff, durability, storability, weight, because that's what the 20th century economy incentivized. Produce a lot of product at the cheapest price possible, and that will lead to profit. That model works best when lots and lots of people want some identical thing, like your standard commodity butternut squash. But what Dan discovered is that even within what looks like a commodity industry, the market for squash, you can innovate, find a niche, and reach that subset of customers who will pay more for your product. It's clear to Dan that something is working. People are responding to what he's offering, even if there's a lot of this new business he's still figuring out. We don't know what this looks like in 10 years, but we know that the demand for food increasingly is local and regional. When you go to a restaurant, you know, just 30 years ago when you went to a restaurant, you were ex- there was a certain set of ingredients that were expected, whether you're in LA or New York or wherever, at least on the type of high-end restaurant that sort of determines a lot of attention anyway. And today, that's the exact opposite. You want to go to these restaurants because they have something you can't get at home or in another region, uh, and it speaks to place. It speaks to the environment of the place, it speaks to the cultural connectivity of the history of the place. And so that's very exciting. You have to breed for that. Where, how does that scale? I don't know. I just, all I know from this work is that biology doesn't scale. It replicates and it's inefficient and it's localized. And that is how we're trying to think about this company, whether that ends up you know, adding to the profit potential. I don't know. I mean, there's a bunch of passion economy lessons here, but I think the for me, what, what just keeps coming through is this very simple picture. There's the person breeding seeds. There's the farmer buying the seeds. There's the chef who's thinking a lot about how to turn the farmer's produce into good ingredients. And then there's the consumer consuming it. And if you think, like, for most of human history, those were all one person, you know. Yeah, who's, exactly. and, and that the 20th century really not only separated them, but like put up almost like steel walls between them so that the breeder is barely talking to the farmer. The farmer is barely talking to the chef. Chefs maybe are talking to the consumers. But and so all you're doing in a sense is you're just saying, no, no, we got to link it. it, All people have to be linked up in this chain. And I think that's possible in any field, I would guess, or most fields, far more fields than exist now. Left out of that is the people putting up the money because that was key. So yes. Who's investing this? Because this is the long game. This right. doesn't. Right. This right. isn't happening. I said breeding's very much faster, but I was comparing it to what our great grandparents did in terms of like how you project profits or return on investment. Forget it. Right. If you I want to make 80% of my money next you're, quarter, you're not going to help well, I've me. I've got yeah. a dream investors who are looking at a 20-year plan. Yeah. That's what we've got, a 20-year plan, because that's what's going to take. But who better, because we're talking about a cultural shift. We're not just talking about delicious this and organic that and nutrient-dense that. That in itself should sell to, but really we're talking about a cultural shift because we've got to get people to see a squash that tastes like a squash. You don't want to go back. 
in the same way that once you taste tomato, it tastes like tomato, you don't want to go back. You don't want to settle. Yeah. And one thing that Americans are good at is greed. You know, and we talk about it, the miserable food culture of America, the cheapening of everything. But one thing that we excel at is because of our lack of food culture, we dive after the things that are hedonistic and pleasurable. And that is for the food, the thing, and that's why I think this movement has such legs, because we're talking about hedonism. What movement do we talk about where we tell you to, to go after more of the thing that is good for the environment and good for you? The environmental movement is about religion. It's everything is about giving up stuff. This is about that. That's where it's the, you play the long game. I think you have something here. Dan would know a thing or two about the long game. Over his career, he has seen the farm-to-table movement go from niche hippie cuisine in Berkeley to a national force that has reshaped how we all eat. Today in the passion economy, that sort of disruption where small niche businesses can upend entire industries is happening faster than ever. But these sorts of transformative companies or movements, they almost always begin in some weird niche that might not make sense to most people, like that French chef who critiqued Alice Waters' dish and said, that's not cooking, that's shopping. Sometimes people won't get it initially. Maybe some people will never get it. That's okay, because for the people who are a part of your weird niche, the people who share your passion, they will get it. And over time, there will be more of them. One of the keys of the passion economy is matching your unique passion and expertise to that group of customers, those people who will pay a little more, or maybe a lot more, for what makes your thing unique, the people who get it. And crucial in spreading the word is having, this word I don't really like, an influencer, having a connector, having an advocate who can spread your message, or many advocates who can spread your message. Now, luckily for Dan, he is that advocate. He is that influencer. He's pretty famous. He's a good talker. He's passionate. He gives TED Talks and wrote a book and talks all the time about this. And that is such a valuable asset. Chefs have this broadcasting potential and that these food trends start from up high. They start in kitchens that have the time and the potential to advertise these ideas. That's true of a lot of food that's been introduced lately in the United States, you know. Sushi, Greek yogurt, kale. I mean, all these things came from chefs and they get you know, they get transmuted, they get dumbed down, they get co-opted, of course. But, like, we're ta really talking about what the westernized, Americanized conception of a plate of food is. I mean, it's meat-based. It's six or seven ounces of protein, six or seven, six or seven days a week, twice a day. And that's disastrous for our environmental footprint. And from chef's point of view, it's not that delicious. And so to argue for a more vegetable-slash-grain-centered diet. We have to breed to make that taste good. Otherwise, this movement will last about as long as this conversation. The Passion Economy is a three Uncanny Four production. It's hosted by me, Adam Davidson. This episode was produced by Shane McKeon with help from Lena Richards. Our music is composed and performed by Casey Halford. Our sound engineer is Gene Montalvo. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. If you want to learn more about the theories in this podcast, check out my book, aptly named The Passion Economy. 